I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. On today's episode of Revolution of Military Affairs, we're going to talk about the Russo-Ukrainian War and do a bit of a strategic assessment after two years into the conflict. This episode coincides with the paper I recently had uh, released through the Association of the United States Army entitled The Russo-Ukrainian War, a strategic assessment two years into the conflict. At this state, the conflict seems to be at a bit of a stalemate, and a lot of analysts don't like to use that term, uh, but I think in reality that's that's where the conflict is. General Valery Zaluzhny, the former commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, stated as such in an Economist interview in November uh, 2023, and there are a lot of analysts out there who emphatically state uh, positions counter to those of Zaluzhny and that the war is, in fact, not a stalemate. But I think if we dig into the facts a bit uh, and take an objective look at this and not a, an emotional look, right? Because as I've stated throughout this, uh, this podcast series, uh, in general, I, I, I would like to see Ukraine win this conflict and come out on top. However, I think an unemotional look at this, an objective look at this conflict... Uh, will show that coming out on top, uh, depending on how one defines that, is probably not in the cards at this point for Ukraine, unfortunately. Put the bottom line up front, I believe that Russia is winning the conflict. I say that because Russia, in my assessment, has its minimal acceptable outcome. It possesses the Donbass, it possesses the land bridge to Crimea, and it possesses Crimea itself. This victory condition is dependent upon a couple of key factors. Uh, first and foremost, or Ukraine's inability to generate a force that's sufficient to do three basic things. First is defeat Russia's forces in each of the discrete areas uh, that I outlined above. Right, so the Donbas, the Crimea, and the peninsula leading to, or the land bridge leading to the uh, Crimean Peninsula. Second 
is the ability to retake control of that territory. So those three territories each need to be uh, retaken. And then third, they have to hold that territory against subsequent Russian counterattacks. Again, if you ascribe to the idea that those territories are Russia's minimally acceptable outcomes, right, those are the no kidding things that they uh, define victory as, uh, then they will retake, they will attempt to retake those if Ukraine uh, is is actually able to retake those uh, territories from Russia. And there's no amount of precision strike or long-range fires or drone attacks that can compensate for the lack of land forces that Ukraine's currently facing. It takes land forces to defeat a land force. Um, and again, I know this runs counter to a lot of a lot of things that many analysts are out there saying today. Uh, you know, some folks think that you can just put, uh, you know, Attackums and HIMARS and Gimlers and Hellfire Strikes and all these different types of uh, long-range fires over an area, and somehow that will uh, that will count as uh, being able to control or or defeat a force in that area, but at the end of the day, that is fundamentally incorrect, and it takes a land force um, to remove a land force, to hold territory, and to protect against counterattacks against other land forces uh, seeking to control a piece of territory. And so that that big picture, that right there is why I think that uh, my assessment is that Ukraine is uh, currently unable uh, to... Uh, turn the balance against the turn the strategic balance in this in this war against Russia. This is also part of the rift I think that developed between uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky and Valery Zaluzhny was this idea of insufficient forces for the task at hand. Right, so this is a strategic imbalance between ends and uh, and means uh, really. Uh, you know, the ends that uh, Zelensky is looking for exceed the means that the army, the military in general, could put out in the field and, and accomplish. And so, you know, Zeluzhny and, and some of the pieces that he was uh, quoted in over the past several months has said essentially that, you know, Russia has uh, far more land forces than Ukraine uh, can counter with their own land forces and the situation for generating land forces for the Ukrainian military is such that they are unable to generate sufficient land force for the requirements at hand. And so I think that that really is at the heart of this problem uh, that we're seeing play out today. And again, I think the big takeaway is that it takes a land force to defeat a land force. It takes a land force to counter against a land forces uh, counterattack. Uh, it, and to hold territory, right, to retain territory, it takes land forces, uh, legitimate land forces that can defend against significant uh, attack and counterattack themselves. And that is at the heart of this, uh, this assessment. And with that, I'll go ahead and uh, we'll work through this. I'll start on the Russian side. And we'll work through this and just using the typical uh, heuristic that a lot of people are familiar with as it relates to discussing strategy. I know it's a simplistic outlook, but we'll use the ends, ways, means, and risk uh, paradigm to look at each side in the conflict. First, uh, we'll talk through Russia, then we'll talk through Ukraine, and at the end, uh, I'll give a, a basic rundown of how I think uh, things are played out and what the future of this conflict will be, at least for the next several months. So for Russia, their strategic ends, I think, boiled on to six key points, and here they are. So first, it's fracture the Ukrainian state politically, territorially, and culturally. 
Second, maintain sufficient territorial acquisitions to support a range of acceptable political outcomes for Moscow. Third, maintain strategic material overmatch. Fourth, exhaust Ukraine's ability to continue fighting both uh, materially uh, and as it regards Ukraine's support from the international community. And we see that playing out right now in the U.S. as uh, you know, the Congress is uh, dithering on whether or not they're going to fund more and additional support for Ukraine. Fifth, normalize the conflict's abnormalities, right? So this loss of territory, for example, is one of those abnormalities, right? We want to make that look, uh, the Russians want to make that look as though it's, it's not an abnormality and it's just part of the status quo. So normalizing the conflict's abnormalities. And then six, finally, is undercut and erode Ukraine's ability to conduct counter or to conduct offensive operations to reclaim their annexed territory, right? So that's just that strategy of attrition uh, that you see played out. These meat, uh, uh, human, human wave tactics, meat tactics, uh, whatever you want to call them. We'll talk a bit more about that when we get into ways. But those six points, uh, I think, are really at the heart of Russia's strategic goals in Ukraine. Looking at risk, Russia's already weathered a significant amount of the uh, storm as it relates to the invasion of Ukraine. They've been able to augment and offset a lot of the the problems, uh, economic problems associated with the sanctions that that have been levied against them. They've been able to tap into uh, other other actors in the international system to help them offset some of the the negative impacts of those sanctions, uh, especially as it relates to uh, munitions and other, other tools and implements of war. And so I think that that, that risk has is, is largely been uh, addressed by Russia uh, to this point. The second thing I think that uh, is a significant point of risk for Russia is d- uh, the domestic unrest uh, that could potentially lead to political instability. Part of this, I think, Russia is taking head on, you know, the assassination of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner Group, in August of 2023 is perhaps the most high-profile example of this technique. Uh, Further, uh, in the paper I wrote about the disappearance of Alexei Navalny, but in the uh, time since uh, this paper was written and today, we found out that uh, Navalny has been, one would have to assume, executed by the Russian regime, but uh, whether or not that's true or not, we don't know, but nonetheless uh, dead. Uh, Then you have longtime Kremlin henchman uh, Igor Gurkin, who's been extremely critical of Putin and the Kremlin's handling of the war um, in the past year or so. He was recently sentenced to four years in prison in January of 2024. And then uh, Russia continues to suppress journalism and uh, try and silence opposition and dissent. There's been some some protests in the wake of Navalny's desk, uh, death, and you've seen typical Russian tactics there arresting protesters and uh, locking them away. So I think that those two things there are are the biggest things that uh, Russia's got to deal with. Part of, I think, the other thing as it, as it relates to uh, social and domestic unrest is something that I think Ben Hodges pointed out, and I thought that, that it was a really good point, and that is uh, Russia's trying to keep a lot of the casualties away from Moscow and St. Petersburg. And so by pulling uh, lower social strata, uh, people from lower social strata, the uh, lower end of the social hierarchy there in Russia, and pulling from areas that aren't near the major centers, right? Not near 
Moscow or St. Petersburg, but pulling from out far east and, and northern areas, right out in that Siberian area. Uh, they're offsetting a lot of the potential domestic um, up, uproar associated with these high casualties by, by putting them on people uh, that society tends to not care about as much, right? And that's how I think Russia is offsetting risk. Moving on to means, Russia is relying on their, their resource base uh, in terms of manpower and material to overcome, uh, to enable their ends, uh, and then also to enable the ways that achieve their ends, right? And so they use these manpower advantages and these material advantages uh, to essentially drive a strategy of attrition against the Ukrainian armed forces. They offset some of the, some of the requirements some of these material requirements in terms of manpower, again, through the recruitment of prisoners, that's highly noted, also through the use of proxy forces, right? So the Wagner Group, obviously, contractual proxy, uh, but then you've got the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Armies, uh, both of which are cultural proxies uh, who've been used since the beginning of this this war in 2014. Uh, but, uh, you know, Wagner's coup in June of 2023 or whatever the term is you want to use to call what Wagner and Prigozhin did uh, in the summer of 2023 as they marched on the Kremlin or marched on Moscow. Nonetheless, that's cooled Russia's reliance on uh, the Wagner group as a supporting proxy force. It's also important to note at this point, too, that Russia's fighting a defensive war. Uh, they're not really fighting a, an offensive war where they're trying to seek grand amounts of territory, right? I think what they're doing, uh, like we've just seen recently in the past day or so, Avdivka uh, all but fall to the Russian forces. I think what they're doing at this point is nibbling out uh, little little pieces uh, are on the periphery of the territories that they have uh, so that when negotiations with Kiev do come, they have... Uh, ample territory that they can uh, that they can cede back to Ukraine as a, uh, as a bargaining chip, if you will, uh, to show that they are willing to negotiate, but not do so at the cost of losing uh, their minimal acceptable outcome. And so that's an important factor here to understand is this defensive war, right? And so with that, defensive, defensive battles um, don't require nearly as uh, much manpower as offensive fighting, right? So if they're sitting there on the defense along the contact line and having intermittent uh, skirmishes and battles with with uh, Ukrainian forces or you know being attacked with rockets or missiles or drones or whatever, that that draw on manpower is not nearly as high. And so while battles like Evdivka um, are, are going on here and there. Uh, throughout the conflict, big picture, uh, Russia's on the defense, and so they're actually able to regenerate a lot of combat power. The other thing with this uh, that I think is important to note is that uh, support through uh, good domestic or good diplomatic relationships with China, North Korea, and Iran are also helping uh, Russia offset a lot of challenges they would otherwise have with their base of power, right? And so their ability to field uh, resources to help them continue to fight. And so while Ukraine is relying on, you know, the U.S. and a lot of uh, uh, Western nations uh, to help them, Russia is doing something similar, albeit with a different group of uh, strate strategic actors, and that's helping Moscow maintain that material overmatch that they need uh, to continue to advance towards their ends. We've hit it on the ways indirectly throughout this, this conversation to this point, but I think it's important to list them 
uh, plainly here so that they're they're clearly understood and able to be articulated and uh, analyzed. And so I think that that breaks down into five subordinate ca categories. And so I'll list those here, right? So I, my assessment is that, uh, you know, Russia is using a strategy of exhaustion, and that's a big picture strategic goal of theirs is to exhaust Ukrainians, right? And so they're doing that through this uh, the application of, uh, you know, generating attrition across the front and just wearing down Ukraine's material back so that they can no longer continue to resist uh, Russia's holding of the territory. And so I think that's, you know, the big picture idea there. But within that, there's the five points here. And so the first is incrementally increasing territorial gains to support negotiations later down the line. And I've hit on this throughout the conversation so far. I think it's, uh, you know, right now it's bite off little chunks, if you can, on, on Russia's side. Uh, slowly, you know, advance the fence, you know, push the contact line just a tad bit further to the uh, to the west uh, in hopes of, you know, if, if negotiations do come, you can be uh, in a position, Russia can be in a position to give back territory, but then actually retain what it is they want. Uh, number two is fortify those territorial gains to prevent Ukrainian efforts to retake the land, right? So as you incrementally move up, you um, invest that area with holding forces that can withstand and, and overcome any sort of Ukrainian attempt to retake that territory. And that gets back to that point uh, on number one there where you have that those territorial gains that you, A, you know, your, your minimal acceptable outcomes, but B, also those territories that you can negotiate with later down the line. Number three is the uh, destruction of Ukrainians' offensive capability to prevent future attempts to retake annexed territory. This is a distinct and nuanced point that I think needs to be uh, examined in a bit more detail. There's offensive capabilities or defensive capabilities, right? Uh, and a lot of those, there's overlap. But nonetheless, um, if you destroy, and on Russia's side, if they destroy Ukraine's ability to conduct offensive operations and do much more than just uh, holding the territory that they have, right, uh, then they're going to enable the previous point, right, Those, that territorial fortification of uh, annexed Ukrainian land. And so all those, those first three points there, I think, are really intertwined with one another and incredibly important to, uh, to appreciate how Russia is going about uh, retaining the territory there in, in Ukraine. Point number four is to temporarily elongate the conflict to outlast U.S. and Western military support, right? So temporal elongation of the conflict just means make the conflict go longer. I think Russia views uh, time on its side, and if they can cause the conflict to continue to, to drag out while continuing to destroy Ukrainian offensive capabilities, uh, while incrementally uh, extending their front along the contact line, then they're in a, a position that is way far more advantageous for themselves. And then lastly, uh, point number five, temporarily and spatially elongate the conflict to, uh, to exceed Ukraine's manpower reserves, right? And again, this is tied to all the other points. But if you temporarily, so you elongate the conflict in time, right? You make it go longer than uh, what Ukraine... Uh, can support in terms of external international support, right? 
then that works to your favor. But at the same time, if you spatially elongate the conflict, right, if you make the conflict exist on a much larger front, that diminishes your opponent, in this case Ukraine's, manpower reserves. And if they're already tapped in terms of manpower reserves as it is, and you have more points of contact along the line, right? So like you have these destructive, uh, and seemingly pointless battles uh, for places like Avdivka, but what it's doing is it's spatially elongating, it's temporally elongating the conflict, it's causing more death and destruction on both sides, certainly, yes, but again, because Russia has this manpower advantage, uh, the death and destruction aspect of things favors uh, favors Russia and doesn't favor Ukraine. And I think this is also an important thing. If you go back and if you read Alexander Svechin's book, Strategy, this is one of the key things that he talks about, right? So there's this idea that um, attrition, you know, is is bad. But if you read Svechin, he talks about attrition as being something you do um, essentially in this situation, this, this idea of temporal and spatial elongation. Um, it, 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 if there's no decisive operation, no decisive battle, no decisive element of a campaign uh, within a given point of time, then these, these uh, battles and fronts of attrition uh, help contribute to you accelerating your opponent towards strategic exhaustion. And so again, I don't necessarily... I mean, you can call it good or bad strategy if you want. That's fine, uh, but I think it's just strategy. I don't, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of emotive terms like good or bad. Uh, is it, is it, is it accelerating Russia to their strategic ends? Uh, I think it is. And is it pushing Ukraine away from their own strategic ends? I think it is. And so, you know, um, there's that. I, I, I just, I, I don't get behind. Um, emotive ideas such as good or bad strategy necessarily. To summarize here with uh, on, on Russia's strategic assessment, it is my assessment that uh, Russia is winning. So if one, if winning in a war is defined by one state's attainment of their political military objectives at the cost of their adversaries' political military objectives, then I think Russia appears to be uh, possessing the uh, the upper hand through two years of conflict. Russia's strategy of exhaustion and territorial annexation appears to be working, albeit at a high cost to the Russian economy and the Russian people. Nonetheless, they've offset a lot of that through various means. Uh, Russia's had to diversify its bases of power to maintain the war stocks that it requires to execute its strategy of exhaustion. And it has to exact, and it has to have and it has exacted a heavy toll on the Russian people to conduct its bite-and-hold tactics that have enabled the uh, territorial gains to support its strategy of exhaustion. Uh, considering that Russia is largely on the defensive now, holding its position along the line of contact, the toll on the Russian pe people will likely decrease in the uh, coming year. However, considering Russia's defensive position, it will likely maintain the upper hand on the battlefield throughout 2024. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, so looking at Ukraine side of things here now, we're going to start with Ukrainian ends. So essentially... Uh, Ukraine's ends are fairly simple. It's to uh, restore their international borders uh, circa 1991, right? So retaking all that land, uh, the Donbass, the the land bridge to Crimea, and then Crimea itself. Those are things that it considers to be uh, its territory, which, you know, it it rightfully is. And so those are the the significant goals there that uh, Ukraine's after. An important point, though, to note here. So this is uh, this requires offensive operations, right? Offensive, you got to go take that land back. It requires defeating the land force that's holding that land, right? Because there's su- significant forces, uh, Russian forces, invested uh, in that territory, so physically holding that ground. So you have to go in and either scare them away, which the odds of that are probably not great, um, or you have to um, destroy them, right? You have to kill your way through retaking all that land or killing them up to a point, then being the Russian forces, uh, to where they throw up their hands and say, okay, we're done, and then they you know, they abscond out of there. So significant uh, challenge to bring that about. And again, that requires high numbers of people, high numbers of land forces. And there's an interesting point. Putin recently uh, indicated that Russia has 670,000 soldiers committed to the conflict, which is a more than a 200% increase from Russia's initial 190,000 uh, strong invasion force, which I think also included uh, the the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, plus probably uh, Wagner Group and some other contributors. Uh, and so that's 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 fascinating uh, because that number of soldiers committed to the conflict is significant 670,000 now the number of those soldiers that are physically in ukraine conducting combat operations holding the line uh the fidelity doesn't exist to uh to make a good guess either way on what the what that is Nonetheless, let's do a, a little bit of a thought experiment here. So if uh, we're using the traditional three to one attack to defense ratio, right? And you can get into whether or not that's a viable thing. And if you go back and look, I forget the journal, uh, but one of the premier international relations journals of the uh, within the international re- relations community has uh, had a really interesting argument between uh, Trevor DePew uh, and... Um, John Mearsheimer in the in the early '80s about the validity of that concept. Uh, Mearsheimer coming down on the idea that it wasn't a valid tool, whereas Depew said that he had, and he showed his math. Um, he had the the math to support the idea. So, nonetheless, regardless of your feelings about that that heuristic, which is all it is, right? It's a tool to help us in the absence of certainty continue uh, thinking about and planning how to do you know, offensive to defensive operations operations, and vice versa. So if we use that, right, so if Russia has 670,000 troops, and let's just say they're all in Ukraine, 
don't know what they're doing specifically, but let's just say they're all in UK, Ukraine and we'll consider them all combat forces. Um, if you do the math, the three to one math on that, that is more than 2 million troops uh, for Ukraine to have to muster to generate that three to one ratio against Russian forces. Uh, and so 2 million troops, generating 2 million troops is probably outside what Ukraine can actually accomplish. Now, when we consider that, does modern technology obviate the need for land forces like some people suggest? There's there's a lot of people out there, to include General Cavoli, who's uh, the commander of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, European Command. Um, he suggested that precision, uh, precision strike, precision munitions, it actually beats mass. Now, uh, this... This hypothesis has not yet been proven, and in fact, uh, the facts on the ground in Ukraine uh, seem to, to actually disprove that. And so, I think the matter of the fact remains that long-range precision strike drones of all types and excellent targeting information have done what complementary arms and intelligence have always done. They have supported the advance or defensive posture of competing land forces, but they have not supplanted it. Moreover, technology must be viewed in the context of both the operations that it's supporting, but also the adversarial operations that it seeks to overcome. If it is correct that Russia's strategy is primarily concerned with retaining its territorial acquisitions at this point, and thus Russian military forces are focused on conducting defensive operations, and that Ukrainian land forces do not have the numbers to conduct the attack, defeat, occupy, defense sequence in conjunction with those other components of combined arms operations, then the precision strike, drones, and targeting information might be the window dressing of a futile, a futile strategic position. And uh, I think seen in this light, Kiev's strategy is out of balance. That is, Kiev's ends, right, what they want to achieve, exceed their means. They physically, they do not possess the things they need, in this case, manpower, uh, combat forces on the ground to go in and accomplish those strategic ends. And because of that, I think, uh, you know, this war can continue to be considered one of attrition. And that attrition favors Russia's strategy at this point. On the risk side of the equation for Ukraine, I think that clearly the obvious uh, risk here is the loss of U.S. support uh, politically and financially, as well as uh, on the military side. And right now, they're you know we're still working through that problem with uh, the U.S. Congress having not yet approved uh, additional funding for Ukraine, and you know they're pointing right now to the loss of Avdivka as uh, what happens uh, when we don't when the U.S. doesn't follow through and continue delivering uh, military support, and so that um, you know could be an indicator of future future things to come if uh, this spigot of support isn't turned back on uh but then coupled with that is i think uh you know again the lot the ex one of kiev's biggest strategic risks is exhausting or diffusing its military force so much so that russian land forces might attack and confiscate additional ukrainian land throughout the increasingly uh vulnerable positions along its front and so this goes back to that when I mentioned the idea behind uh, Svechin's strategy of attrition, right? You create these 
seemingly pointless uh, battles that just consume manpower and resources. And to the outsider looking in, they, they probably look like a waste. But strategically speaking, especially in this situation where manpower has become uh, the key, I think, the key discriminator between um, success and stalemate, uh, which might be the ultimate driver of success or victory, uh, this these seemingly pointless battles become increasingly important. And I think Russia understands that. And I think Ukraine understands that too. And so that's one of the risks I think that they have to uh, work through on their end is is not getting engaged in these uh, pointless battles like Avdivka. Uh, but then at the same time, that creates a catch-22 where if you don't send forces to defend these these areas that you probably aren't necessarily as interested in, uh, but at the same time, if you don't send something there to stop those attacks, then you still have to uh, you create this situation where you know, an actor like Russia is going to continue to incrementally move forward and continue to take more land. So, very challenging situation and a very high-risk um, situation for Ukraine on both those risks. Okay, so it's no surprise that uh, when we talk about means here for Ukraine that uh, manpower is the number one consideration, and then firepower, right, artillery shells, rockets, uh, missiles, that kind of stuff is is not necessarily secondary, but right up there with, uh, with manpower. But let's go back to the manpower thing, because I think this is an interesting point. So if Ukraine wants to retake its land, right, all the way back to its 1991 um, uh, border uh, with, you know, borders that it had carved out at the after the fall of the Soviet Union, it's going to have to go in and take the Donbass. And let's, let's look at the Donbass for a moment, and Crimea for that matter. Um, you would have to assume, considering the fact that Russia took both um, most of the Donbass, which is you know Luhansk and uh, Donetsk oblasts, uh, they took most of those. You know, in 2014, they took Crimea in 2014. So one would have to assume places like Donetsk city, Mariupol, uh, and a lot of the other cities along. Um, I know Mariupol's outside that, but you know Donetsk city, Luhansk city. Um, and then a lot of those key towns in Crimea, right, that would actually increase the attacker to defender ratio from three to one, again, using uh, accepted uh, military uh, heuristics here, that would increase that required strength from a three to one ratio to a six to one ratio uh, to take some of these territories that have been long, long um under the under the thumb of of Russia and Russian military forces, right? And so I think that that's another factor that's not necessarily being considered here, right? If we were to go in and try and if Ukraine was to go in and try and retake Donetsk City, um, that that would be far different than trying to take a, a city that was recently uh, taken along the contact line and hasn't been held for very long. And so there would be these spikes in the offense to defense ratio as Ukraine moved through the subsequent retaking, clearance, and holding of uh, currently occupied and or annexed, whichever term you'd like to use, uh, territory in Ukraine. So that, I think, is a significant consideration as we look at the means aspect of this, right? The human aspect, the land force aspect. And so a lot of that, you know, 
is uh, is people. A lot of it's also equipment, right? So you've got to have tanks, you've got to have infantry fighting vehicles, you've got to have artillery, you've got to have everything that allows you to fight in a combined arms fashion. Because um, as you know, as, as customary understanding today, if you're not fighting combined arms, you're not fighting correctly. And so that gets back to the point uh, that we raised earlier and a couple times along this conversation here is that, uh, you know, if Ukraine's running out of, of war fighting material, right? Artillery, rockets, missiles, anti-tank, anti-air, uh, tank, IFV, infantry fighting vehicle, um, type equipment. If, if Ukraine's running out of that, which it appears as though they are, and then they're going to have significant challenges accomplishing their ends, right? And so means here are critical, and it's also clearly tied to the way. Since we're talking about means um, and ends, it's 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 hard to separate out the ways. Um, the other thing that I think that's important to note is that if if and when U.S. support is is turned back on, and again, I don't know when this is. You know, this may end up airing after that happens or before that happens. I don't know yet. Um, but nonetheless, there's going to be a lag between when Congress says, okay, we've authorized this and when stuff starts showing up again. And so that lag, that that space between yes and action on the ground is also a significant vulnerability. And I would I would assume that Russia is paying attention to that too, and might use that that window, that lag window, uh, to make some sort of other significant uh, or insignificant land grab, um, just to continue to occupy Ukrainian forces and consume Ukrainian resources. All right, so I basically talked about ways as I talked through means and also through ends with Ukraine. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about my strategic assessment, just the general summary. So. I think the most basic finding is that Ukraine has culminated and they are no longer capable of offensive operations at the scale, nor the duration required to retake the Donbass, the land bridge to Crimea, and Crimea. Additionally, the Ukrainian armed forces uh, will require significant augmentation of land power to remove Russian forces from Ukrainian territory. Precision strike and air power will help. Right. But uh, Ukrainian infantry and armored forces must still move into the terrain, clear the terrain of Russian land forces, hold the terrain and then prevent any, uh, you know, against any Russian uh, counterattack. And so in light of that, I think that onlookers should not expect any grand Ukrainian offensive through 2024. Uh, They might attempt, they being Ukraine, might attempt a smaller uh, scale type offensive, maybe to nibble away at Russian-held territory, but anything larger than that exceeds Ukrainian means. Further, if if U.S. support to Ukraine remains frozen for an extended period of time, Ukraine's ability to hold the contact line with Russia will further deteriorate U.S. weapons and ammunition and military equipment are vital to Ukraine's ability to defend itself. And each day that uh, each day without that support adds more fragility to Ukraine's supply network, its artillery forces, and its land forces. All this contributes to the proliferation of weakness to the Ukrainian armed forces and Kiev's inability to uh, develop a useful military strategy. In short, I think that 2024 looks fairly bleak for Ukraine and its ability to meet its political military objectives. Nonetheless, if the U.S. Uh, and its support to Ukraine is unlocked relatively soon, Ukraine's ability to defend itself might see a slight dip in capability, but, but it will likely rebound relatively quickly. 
Uh, Ukraine's manpower challenges, however, will still prevent it from any large-scale off, uh, offensives during 2024. The influx of long-range precision strike, air power, and, and intelligence from the U.S. and other Western uh, states will help m- mitigate some of the personnel challenges facing the Ukrainian armed forces, but it certainly won't obviate that concern. Uh, in summary, I think, then, therefore, the attritional grind of forces aligned on opposing trench networks is likely to characterize the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine through 2024. Looking at uh, the overall strategic balance, I think uh, we'll do just uh, a little bit of a who's got the advantage here, right? So when we look at the ends, uh, I think Russia has the advantage. Russia has to win by not losing. Ukraine has to win by evicting Russian land forces from its territory. Uh, Russia seems far more aligned and in better position to accomplish its aims than does Ukraine. When we look at risk, uh, you know, Russia's basically weathered a lot of the storm associated with uh, its operations. And so its risks, I think at this point are relatively low, whereas Ukraine has a significant resource problem and resource dependency problem uh, that, that is a significant strategic risk that's, that's directly impacting operations today. And so again, I think advantage there goes to Russia. Uh, when we go back to uh, to means, again, advantage, I think, here is with Russia. Ukraine's limited manpower and dependence on the international community make it extremely vulnerable um, to being able to accomplish its ends. And I think that uh, Russia, on the other hand, it, it can continue throwing people at the problem uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, lastly, you've got the ways, right? Uh, Russia, again, I think here has the advantage Uh, Russia's greater resource base allows it to conduct a strategy of exhaustion against Ukraine, uh, which has limited means and cannot uh, cannot actively pursue its ends in a way that it would it would like to do. To close, I think it's uh, important here to note that a strategy um, out of line, right, ends that exceed ways and means is is not a useful strategy and and right now i think ukraine's teetering on that on the cusp of uh of that and that's created this uh, stalemate that we see now but i think the other important thing and this is something i've said throughout the podcast several times it takes a land force to defeat a land force all the other stuff uh all the bombs and missiles and precision strike and drones and overhead stuff that can be overcome uh, in many cases by digging a hole in the ground and staying underground and only coming out when you need to, right? And so that's what you're seeing happen here. This prolif- proliferation of all this high-tech stuff is is pushed people, in this case people uh, generally being Russian, well, hell, both forces in this case, underground except when needed to come out and, and fight or try and take something. And so uh, because of that, Again, this goes back to the point. It takes a land force to defeat a land force. Now, what is a land force? Uh, today, it's human beings and augmented with uh, you know material weapons of war, right? Tanks, Bradleys, whatever flavor of uh, infantry fighting vehicle you may see, uh, all sorts of other stuff, right? Uh, moving into the future, perhaps, maybe that turns into some sort of automated system, right? Some little like tracked vehicle with, uh, with a machine gun on it that can go in and enter and clear things. Uh, that'll help overcome those those three to one or six to one uh, ratios of attacker to defender. But right now we aren't we aren't in that space, and so human capital is still, I think, a a priority resource 
as we think about armed conflict and as we think about the Russo-Ukrainian war. And I think really the the most important thing uh, to close here with, because this war is a land war, it is fought for territory, it is fought amongst armies fighting for territory. Uh, it's important to go back to Clausewitz. And again, I'm going to read this Clausewitz quote because I think it's apropos for for this entire conflict, right? And it goes back to my idea there that to def to, to defeat a land force, you need a land force. Clausewitz writes that, so long as I have not overthrown my opponent, I am bound to fear that he may overthrow me. Thus, I am not in control. He dictates to me as much as I dictate to him, right? Uh, and so I think this is, this is critical to understand about this conflict, right? High-tech gadgetry and, and cool stuff and, you know, trying to legitimize acquisition programs. Um, that's great, but uh, the reality of war in many cases is it doesn't necessarily align with that. And to defeat a land force, you need a land force. And you have to put in armies on the ground that can go identify, fight, destroy other armies, and then hold that territory, um, and then hold that territory against, you know, counterattack. Some of these areas, again, I think I've asked a couple of guests to this point, you know, what are, what are their thoughts on potential insurgencies if Ukraine were to retake some of these territories that have been part of Russia for a long time? You know, and it's up in the air. Uh, that's fine. I, I, I don't have a, a thought either way. I just think it's a question worth asking. Nonetheless, um, it takes armies, it takes land forces, it takes lots of people to overcome those problems. And so I think if we're not thinking about the requirement for lots of people, uh, then we're probably thinking about armed conflict incorrectly. And again, moving into the future, there may be little killer robots running around zapping other killer robots, uh, but that's not where we are today. And so I just think that that's the critical thing here that we have to understand. So long as I have not overthrown my opponent, I am bound to fear he may overthrow me. Thus, I am not in control. He dictates to me as much as I dictate to him. Uh, that That passage right there, I think, typifies this conflict and uh, shows us why it's in a relative uh, form of stasis right now, stalemate along the line. And uh, considering all the strategic variables here, I think that uh, Russia unfortunately has the upper hand. Russia unfortunately will probably maintain the upper hand through 2024. And it uh, does not, it looks fairly bleak in my assessment for Ukraine uh, to accomplish its strategic ends. I just want to thank you for listening uh, today. Thank you for uh, putting up with my my lisp. It's uh, challenging sometimes to say certain things. So if you hear me stumbling, that's why uh, I try and go in and clean it up. But sometimes I just uh, I just let it go because you know <laughs> you got to understand the human aspect of things, and that's one of the human aspects of of me and my podcast is my little lisp that comes out from time to time. So. With that said, thank you very much. I uh, hope that uh, Ukraine uh, can get uh, can meet their strategic aims, but again, I don't think it, it. It certainly doesn't look likely within the next year. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.